So in 2021, <coughs> uh, the Pew Research Center, <coughs> pardon me, uh, published a comprehensive study that asked this question, what makes life meaningful? And that's a big question. I mean, um, so they surveyed adults from 17 d developed countries. And the top three things, or one of the top three things that people consistently mentioned was work. That work is what makes life meaningful. The other two was family and health, as you would probably expect. So work, family, health. In other words, work is one of the most common sources of meaning for, for most people, or most adults around the world. And if you are from Spain, and that's your number one choice, work is the, most, uh, the things that give you most meaning. It's most, something most important to you. And if you're in the age, according to the survey, if you're aged from 30 to 49, some of you are following that age, that you are more likely to actually find meaning in work than other age groups surveyed. So, but, however, on the other hand, uh, work is also a source of frustration. Uh, for example, one lady from Italy in the survey said that because she doesn't get any personal days, her work can be pretty frustrating because it's constant work and never get, get a break. And actually, the Bible, uh, you may or may not expect, has similar observations about work. On the one hand, it has a really high view of work. Uh, in Genesis 1, we just walked through Genesis 1, that the God of the Bible is a God who works, who works to create the world, to create everything you see, and to create you and I uh, as human beings. And then, the, as, as you might know, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about work. For example, Proverbs uh, 6 uh, says that encourages you to look to the ants, to their resourcefulness, their diligence, to learn how you might approach your work uh, in the same way. And then when you get to the New Testament, of course, Jesus Christ, who himself was a carpenter, he worked uh, with his hands before he became the preacher and the teacher that he was in his public ministry. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote all those great letters in the New Testament, as you know, in his missionary journeys, he was also a tent maker so that he can provide for himself as well as those who are with him. And even on the Sabbath day, um, Jesus also worked. He, he, he did the work of min, uh, mercy and necessity. Now the regular work, of course, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath rule. But as you remember, um, you know, he healed a man who was invalid for 38 years. You know, he couldn't get into the pool to wash him, so he healed him. And the religious leaders of the, of the day was furious. He said, why would you do this on a Sabbath day? And Jesus says, my father is working until now and I'm working. He's saying that there are, there's a kind of work you can do even on the Sabbath, the work of mercy and necessity without breaking the Sabbath rule. On the other hand though, as we just said from the survey, that the Bible is also agrees with the survey that it's, it's realistic about work. Work can be a source of meaning and, and, and very much important to you, but work can be very frustrating. Um, if you look back to the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the hardest words for me to pronounce, grew up in China, English, my second language. Pray for me as I pronounce this word a few more times. Um, so one of the most common words used in this book is the word translated vanity. The Hebrew word translated vanity, as you, as you can tell, means uh, vapor or a breath, something very unsubstantial. That's here a moment and it's gone the next. And in the book Ecclesiastes, it specifically means the fruitfulness fruitlessness of human enterprise and endeavor. So the writer, writer can say that all of life, he has searched meaning from work, from wisdom, from pleasure, but none of that fulfills him because everything is a vapor, is meaningless. 
It's like you invest a pound of gold and you get out a feather every time you do something. It doesn't seem to uh, bring the reward that you're looking for. Your work always, at least parts of it, will be frustrating, will be less rewarding than you want, than you would like. So then if you can agree with the survey, but also with the Bible, that work is a great source of meaning, but also a source of frustration, then we can ask Moses, who wrote Genesis 2, what does he have to say about that? What does he have to say about people back then, also to you and I today? And of course, uh, this passage doesn't say everything the Bible has to say about work. You have the rest of the Bible for that, but he has very important things to say. It is saying that what we will learn is that nothing really can sustain you in your ups and downs in your work and can help you face the meaninglessness sometimes of work than God's very life and presence. Most of saying there's nothing that can sustain you through the ups and downs of life or the meaningless of work than God's very life and presence. Why is that? Why is that so? It is so because God is both actually the source of work, of your work, He's also the context of your work. So God is the source of your work, this in two ways. First, he is the source of your work because he's actually the giver of life. As, you, as we read in verse 7, that God breathed life into the man, that he became a living creature. That here, it is saying that we are not actually a result. You and I are not a result of a long uh, period of years and centuries of um, evolution, but we're the result of the direct creation from God. Human beings, as well as the rest of creation, were a direct creation from God. Of course, their development, there is a process that go through. It's not um, against that, but it's saying that you have been given life by God himself. And, but why is this important, though, for your work? Why, is, why was this important, first of all, to the uh, Israelites back then? Why is it important to your work? Uh, as you remember, uh, the backdrop against which Moses wrote the book of Genesis is that the Israelites were in their wilderness wanderings, and they were going through all these different nations who worshiped different gods. The, t the temptation, of course, is for them just to go along with the culture where they were. So, you know, if this country worshiped the sun as a god, then it's easy to worship uh, the god of the Bible and the sun. Or if the, the, the nation worshiped the river god, you can worship the river god, the sun god, and the Bible. So, so you can just worship a multitude of gods as you go through, which will make your life easier. Then you will fit in pretty well, and you will probably get all the blessings just in case you miss something. You need to worship everything just in case something you've missed. Um, and this is what Moses would say, and what the rest of the Bible would say is idolatry, of course, is uh, making something in creation to be God, which it is not. And idolatry can be also framed in another way, though. Idolatry is actually seeking life from something in creation rather than from God himself. So that was a temptation for, for people of Israel back then, and it's no less a temptation for you and I today, that it is good to work, it is really good to enjoy creation, but the tendency for us and for them was to say, well, this is my God in, in, in a way. And this is what gives me the ultimate meaning. And Moses says that is not where you ought to find meaning. And he, in a way, to be more practical, is really putting a guardrail uh, around your work. You know, the guardrails uh, on the bowling alley to keep my thing from not hitting anything, you know, for <laughs> because I'm a terrible bowler. But for you... For your work, there's a guardrail. Work is great, but it's only great if it's put into 
proper guardrails, put in proper context, proper, proper place, which is work to produce what's good out of creation for the sake of God for others. Once work becomes something other than that, once you cross that boundary, then you go off the lane, as it were. You go off to, to other people's uh, lanes. Anyway, so that is why it's important to remember that God is the one who gives you life. That, as, as you know, as that cliche as that sounds, that he is the giver of life. But he also is um, the source of your work because he's actually the commissioner of work. Uh, in verse 15, uh, God has uh, told Adam and Eve that they are to um, work the garden and to work and keep it. And the phrase to work and keep it actually was found later on in other passages in the Old Testament to actually specifically refer to the duties of the priests in the tabernacle and, and where God uh, meets with the people. So what um, Moses is saying here and what the Bible is saying is that work is a holy calling. Because the priest was, what they, as you know, what they were doing is they were guarding all the things uh, in the uh, tabernacle, but also they were guarding the people in their religious life. They were in charge of a holy calling. They were to make sure that things are set in place so people can worship God in the right way. They were to make sure that people actually have their orientation towards God all the time, no matter where they are, whether they're in the land or whether they're outside the land. So work in itself, as Moses is saying, using this phrase to, to work and to keep it, is a holy calling in itself. It is not something we can take lightly. It's something that you and I are given uh, a privilege to do. This, this is actually why it's satisfying to work. This is actually why it's gratifying to see a project come to an end, have the result that you want. It's, it's satisfying to be able to perform uh, a dance or uh, be able to paint a beautiful art piece because that brings beauty, because work is good. It's something given you and I to do. It is good to do a really hard semester of work and then take your exams and you have good grades. That feels good because that's what you what you call to do. You call to do work, and work is good, is rewarding in many ways. But this also means that God, who created everything, who doesn't really need uh, anyone to to work. You know, if he can create everything, he can sustain everything, he can surely do everything else. But that means that he actually trusts you and I with something that's really important, which is work. Imagine uh, if you were this, uh, the uh, Secret Service agent who's holding the nuclear football, as you know, the launch code for nuclear weapons. Imagine the, the amount of trust the president had to put in you to carry that everywhere he goes. Trusting you, you're not going to press a button just because you had a bad day. Um, and that's the kind of trust God has put in you, in your hands, as you work. He's saying, I have created everything that you see, you and everything, yet I'm giving into your hands the responsibility to care for it, to bring beauty out of it, to bring good for your neighbors, to bring good in honor of me. And that's a greater amount of trust than someone who cares the nuclear football, I, I would say. Because that's something that will last forever. What you do here will last forever. Creation will be renewed and you will last forever. Your work means very meaningful for, for eternity. So that's why it's gratifying. That's why we shouldn't take it lightly. So we say there's nothing <clears throat> that can sustain you in the ups and downs of your work, in the meaninglessness of your work, um, than God's life and presence. So first is because he's the, the source of your work, but also he is the context of your work. This may be a little weird. What do you mean God's the context of my work? So there is actually an, a natural context or context in nature, but also a spiritual one. 
So in verse uh, 8 to 14, um, and I know, Alexis, those, those names, I can't never really read them very well, but all these different minerals, all these beautiful rivers, all the different things that is mentioned here, what Moses is saying is that in the very beginning, and even now, creation is beautiful, it's a resource, uh, has rich resources for everything that you need. God had intentionally planned a garden in Eden, as, as we read, so that he can put us in it to work. So he did not just say, well, here you go, here's the earth, work it. He had intentionally cared for humans to put them in the context of a beautiful creation with everything they will need to work. So that in nature, when we look out around us, and even in the things that we've made, we can see God's footprints, or, or handprints, footprints, God's handprints in them everywhere. We know that things were given to us to do, and we know that they came from God, so that there's a context in nature. Uh, let me just be a little more practical here. This, this would mean, though, wouldn't it, if you're a Christian, that actually we take a really, really serious view of nature. We cannot overlook uh, when nature is harmed. We cannot overlook when pollution happens. We cannot overlook all the things that actually uh, degrades the beautiful creation that God has given us. So as Christians, Christians, if you're a Christian, we actually have a responsibility to care for nature, care for creation, care for things that we see uh, for the sake of our neighbor, of course, but because it's beautiful in itself that we are to care for and maintain it. But more importantly, though, there's a spiritual context in which you and I are to work. The spiritual context is the intimacy and fellowship with God himself. Um, this may take me a little bit, but I'll get there. Uh, bear with me. So, um, Remember the beginning, I, uh, I mentioned the book of Ecclesiastes, which, again, hard, hard to pronounce. But when, but when the writer says everything's vanity, everything's meaningless, everything doesn't give me the reward that I want, he also used an important phrase that I left out, which is under the sun. As you remember, he says everything's vanity because I've done everything under the sun. And the phrase under the sun was a specific phrase referring to everything that's done without regard to divine uh, presence without regard to any kind of extra material things. So all you do is focus on this world and all there is. So when you do that, he's saying that's when meaninglessness comes. That's when you cannot find meaning. And that's a clue to what we're reading here. What God is doing here, Moses is saying, is that God's offering to you and I that very thing the writer of Ecclesiastes was missing, which is the presence of God himself. He's doing it, though, in a way that you and I might not first picked up. He's doing it by giving you a command. He says, you may eat of all the trees of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you, you shall not eat. He's, he's, he's offering that. You're saying, wait a minute. You and I will say, but that's restrictive. I want freedom. You can't tell me what not to do. Just tell me what I can't do, right? Just tell me I can eat all the trees. Why worry about that one tree? Why are you giving me this command? That's not friendship. That's dictatorship, right? That's not what I want. Um, but actually, if you think of all your friendships, all your deep friendships, you know that there are things about each other you have to respect. Is there not? There are boundaries within. You enjoy each other's presence. You like to do things together, but there are boundaries. You have to respect the other person's personality, their dignity, their preferences. We can't just say, well, we're friends. I can do whatever I want. You just fit into my framework. You can you just do whatever I want, do whatever I say. That's really not friendship. So what God is saying here is that the boundary was there not because he wanted to restrict your freedom, 
but because we're meant to have intimacy with God through obedience. And that is very counterculture in some way. Because there's actually a modern conception of the intimacy or fellowship with God, which is this, is that I want a spiritual experience, that I want to experience transcendence beyond this world because something's missing. So I want something beyond this world. But I do not want that experience to change how I live. I want still live the way I want, but I want a spiritual experience. I want to be able to say, wow, this is uh, beautiful, this is meaningful, but please don't change how I live. But as we have said, that's, that doesn't work uh, if you are seeking a friendship with that humanistic transcendence. You can't have a friendship or a relationship with someone in, as a human on a human level even without some kind of boundary, without some kind of change in you. Over time, as you know, if you've been married for a long time, like you do change in a good way. Not, not that you become not who you are, but you actually become more who you are through change, through adaptation to your spouse, to, uh, to the one you love, because you have to respect the other person. So with, so with God, God's saying that the way to get to freedom, the way to get intimacy with him is through obedience. Because God's relationship with us is multi-layered. He's not just our creator. He's our king. He's not just our savior. He's our Lord. So as we come into the presence of a king of our Lord, the obedience is also a piece of that friendship. Uh, to, look, uh, to look at this um, from another angle, you might say, like you remember there's another tree in the garden, the tree of uh, life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has had a really insightful comment. He says that, remember the tree of life is in, middle, in the middle of the garden. So the context, the spiritual context of Adam's life was supposed to be that everything should revolve around God who's, who gives life. The, 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 the tree of life symbolized God himself who gives life. So that really, over time, that Adam was supposed to be working while centering his life around God. And that is really the obedience God is calling you to. You might say the, uh, the title for Eugene Peterson's famous book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. The direction is to center everything around God instead of ourselves. So the daily battle is to say, I wake up to deny, to deny myself, to center my life around God instead of myself on a day, every day. The same long obedience in the same direction. And that's what God is calling you and I uh, to do. The way that I want to kind of make this more uh, real to you is to say that even though this may sound counterintuitive, but this fellowship of God has in tremendous power to help you in your work. Because if you know that God is not just there to give you work, to command you to work, but he's there to walk through you, with you in your work. And if you know that he trusts you so much that he gives everything into your hands say, hey, you and my beloved child do work. And if you know that he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, even when work's frustrating, then you can go on even, things get, even, even when things get hard. Even when for years your work seems really frustrating, you just want to quit, but you can keep going. So now, remember though that I said a friendship takes two people. You can't just have one person change. You can't just have one person coming towards the other person. The other person doesn't change. So that's why I think at this point, some of you might say, but yeah, that's great. Having friendship with God, have all this, but isn't this all impossible though? Because what did God do to come towards me? Or if you remember Genesis 3, we'll get to everything is in shambles now, right? We can't have 
the na natural context because nature has been tainted by sin. We can't have spiritual context because now God is separated from us, and we can't really have the source of life now because we're borrowed from the tree of life. So, so what, what you've said, Roger, so far has been really not very helpful. We can't get any of this, right? So you stay with me for the last 10 minutes. You say, well, come on. For the next five minutes, give me something. Um, well, so actually, though, if you survey the Bible, God actually had taken some steps. If you remember in, uh, in, the, book of, uh, in, the, book, in the story of Abraham, you know, he lived in a foreign nation, and God approached Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to call you out to make you a blessing to the whole world through your family. And I'm going to make a covenant with you. Not because you have done anything to approach me. On the contrary, it's because I am taking all the steps that I can to come towards you. So Abraham was called a friend of God. Not because Abraham did anything, but because God has done it. And you remember David, who was tending the sheep when his father was meeting with Samuel. You know, Samuel says, hey, Jesse, David's father, bring me all your sons so I can anoint the next king for Israel. And he went through all of them. No one was qualified. And he says, is there any other person in your house? Jesse says, oh, I forgot. Conveniently, I have a son out there with the sheep. And he brings him in. And then he anoints him as a king. David wasn't seeking God, you might say. He was doing his work, which is great. But God sought him out through Samuel. says, you are the one that I will anoint. And God has done this over and over and over. Of course, there is a period, you might say, that people might be wondering, what's God doing uh, between the Old and the New Testament? There is, there is silence. There's, where is God? Is God coming towards us again? And you know I was going to say this, do you not? That Actually, God came down as a person. He did not just come down and say, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham, now I'm leaving. My presence is not going to be here. And then he didn't say, well, David, I know you as king, but I'm actually going to dwell in the, in the temple later on. But he's saying, I'm going to come to be like one of you. I want to be friends with you so much that I became one of you. So in Christ, he came down. He gave up heaven, you might say, to be on earth, to be with you. He shrinks the glory, joy of heaven for the anguish of the cross. Did you see how far he has gone already? How far God has gone to come to you, to be able to give you that life, to be, to, to be able to give you that context that you, you need, the spiritual, the natural context. But so how, let me be more practical, specific. You know, you, you knew I was going to say this, Jesus and his cross, but how does that actually make things possible? How does that actually make your work a place where you can find meaning, but also you can handle the frustrations in your work? Um, as you remember, the tree of life in the beginning of, of, of the Bible is not mentioned again until the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation that we had walked through. But between those two trees, there's another one, but it's not called a tree of life. Is a tree of death on Golgotha. And that's where things happen. That's where how this happened. Because in order for us to get from where we are now to that tree, back to that tree in the book of Revelation, someone has to go to that tree of death because we've been separated from God. But when you look on the cross, you don't get what you expect. You didn't see you or I on the cross, which is what you would expect, because if we had walked away from God, then we are the ones to pay the debt, then you and I should be on the cross. But when you look at there, it's Jesus on the cross, which is shocking, because he's actually the only one who has never been separated from God, who had the life of God in him, who worked, who worked the hardest, who worked till he died. He has never 
lost fellowship with God. The only person who did not deserve to be there was on the cross. So that when you look there, when you put your faith in there, in him, then you can actually get to the tree of life. But he did the work that no one can do, none of us can do, is to be on the cross. So let me conclude like this. This is a bit of a thought experiment, uh, maybe a dream, you might say. That, you know, Jesus was a carpenter. When he was working with his hands, when he was getting his hands dirty, working with his tools and all the, all the things to make things, do you think he ever had flashbacks to when he actually created human beings in the beginning? Do you think that when he was doing his work on earth, do you think he actually remembered the time when he and his father and the spirit was uh, fa fa fashioning you literally out of the ground and breathing life into you? And he is the one that actually did all the work, the hard work, and going to the cross, remembering you every step away. When he was a carpenter, when he was doing his ministry, when he was going towards the cross, even when he's on the cross, after that, resurrection, ascension, he remember you every step away. So in Christ and him alone, can we get that? Can we get the life we need from God? Can we get the fellowship with God? So that in him alone, you can actually handle the work that may sometimes not bear fruit. You can handle the work that's frustrating. You can actually have true life that sustains you to all eternity. And your work, your work will last forever because his, his work does. Let's pray. Uh, dear Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus on the cross so that we can do work knowing that you are with us always. Give us the courage and the confidence and humility to approach you in Christ so that we may draw life uh, and courage from you so we may do our work well. In Jesus' name, amen.